Amen. Thank you, praise team. That should be our heart's cry every day, that our hearts would belong to him before they belong to anyone or anything else. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Genesis chapter 22. As you're turning there, I'll kind of recap some things for you. Two weeks ago, uh, we started a series called The King and the Kingdom. And uh, one of the, the things that we're trying to do as we study this series is to see one of the major themes that kind of runs along the backbone of the Bible, and that is that God is using all of history to reestablish His kingdom. That God is using all of history to work out the return of His uh, first week we looked and we started with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and how Jesus came preaching a gospel of repentance and a gospel of the kingdom of God. And so we looked at four words that all begin with the letter D to help us remember and to kind of understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God. Then last week, we went back to the beginning. We went back to the very beginning of time at the moment of creation in Genesis 1 through 3, and we saw that God, the creator king, made a very good creation, that he made us in his image, and we were in perfect relationship and perfect rest with him. But we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that something horrible happened. We rebelled against the king. We tried to use his creation to live like we were the king's. And in doing so, we lost our rest, we lost our perfect relationship with this good king. And as you know, our sin problem doesn't really get better after the fall, does it? What happens from there is uh, one of Adam's children, Cain, murders his own brother. And then we see from there that sin continues to spread Across the globe, person to person, the disease of sin is relentless. The spread is fast and furious. So much so that we see uh, the story of Noah, that God decided he had to intervene. He had to act and confront this spread of rebellion, this spread of sin, and he does so in a terrible flood that wipes out all life on earth that was not on that ark. But God used Noah to preserve his broken kingdom. God didn't just give up. And so we see, though, even as Noah exits the ark, it's not long after that that sin continues on. Sin goes again, and it becomes apparent to us then as we read Genesis that there's this pattern that begins to emerge. There's this pattern of people sinning. Then there is this pattern of the chaos and the fallout that comes from sin. And then there's a pattern of God intervening to rescue us in his grace in spite of our sin. And that happens kind of over and over in the book of Genesis. And so today we're going to see how this creator king works through a promise to one man to begin establishing his kingdom in a physical and visible way. That man's name is Abram. It's later changed to Abraham. We're going to slow down with Abraham and see how this good king begins to reestablish his kingdom on the earth for our sake together, okay? Let's read Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 together this morning. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. We're going to pick up at the end in some ways. This is kind of a, a later part in Abraham's life, but this is a very significant part as we see how God is reestablishing his kingdom and working in Abraham's life. Go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Uh, we'll finish the chapter uh, through 19 a little bit later on. 
the word of the Lord says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Father, God, we come before you now, and God, we ask that you would speak. Lord, we acknowledge that you are present in this place where two or three are gathered together in your name. You are there among us, and so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray now that our hearts would be attentive, our eyes would be opened, our ears would hear truly what you would have to say in this moment. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the example that we have in Abraham in this difficult moment. May we learn from him how to live by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea this morning is that the Creator King uses covenant relationships to establish his kingdom and prove genuine faith in his people. So two big things. God uses covenant relationships to, number one, establish or reestablish his kingdom uh, here on the earth to bring back his dwelling and authority here on a physical earth among men. We are in the process of that happening now. But then also to prove the genuine faith of his people. So there's kind of a macro element, a big picture element of God and his kingdom. And then there's also this micro element, the individual of how God is in relationship with Abraham and how Abraham is in relationship with God in this moment. And so we're going to see this. You see, God, last week we talked about him as a creator king. But what I want us to see this morning is God is not just a creator king. He is also a relator king. That God is a God of relationships. And and hear me, if you miss that, if you miss that God is a God of relationships, friend, then you will miss God. You will not know him as you are called to know him. We must be careful Uh, Theologians have a a big word, or it's actually three words put together, uh, that describe the temptation that many of us face in America today. It's called moral therapeutic deism. 
Moral therapeutic deism. Here's what that means. That many of us understand that God has some expectations of us. We understand that God expects us to live morally. That there's a code, there's a conduct that we're supposed to have as we go through life. Um, But not only that, that there is this idea that it's a deistic kind of relationship that we have with God. And here's what that means. That God created the world long ago. And he created life on the earth, and he was in relationship for some season of time. But then he kind of set the earth off spinning, and he stepped away a little bit. And God is kind of removed now from the earth. God is no longer as actively engaged as he once was. We see this idea in common language. Have you ever heard this term, the big man upstairs? Yeah. That's a a common phrase that captures that idea that that God's kind of the big man upstairs. He's not nearly as involved as he once was. He's up there. I believe in him. I know him on, I know about him, I guess. And and I know that he wants me to live a certain way, and so I'm going to try to live up to that. I'm going to try to be what the big man upstairs wants me to be. Then there's this word therapeutic. You see that it's not just that, but that also God is not just the big man upstairs. He's also the big band-aid in the sky. So when I have problems, I have troubles, I kind of shoot my prayers up to God and I hope he'll answer me. I hope he'll fix my issues. I hope he'll make it better. We must be careful not to fall into the trap of moral therapeutic deism. This comes out in a myriad of ways in our lives. It comes out by us praying and interacting with him only when we feel like we need him. It comes out in ways when we act like God is somehow contained here in this building on Sunday mornings that we come here to meet with him, but then Monday through Saturday, I kind of do things my way. See, friends, that is moral therapeutic deism at its finest, and we must be careful because God demands much more than that. God is a God of relationship, and he expects us to know him, not just on Sunday mornings, to know him as we go through life. Jesus warns actually religious people in a parable. At the end of the parable, he gets uh, to a certain point in Matthew at the end of this parable, and he says, I will tell them, all these religious people, all these moral therapeutic deists who did a lot of great things in my name, I will tell them, away from me, what? I never knew you. What separates the moral therapeutic religious kind of people from the people that get to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's that they knew him and he knew them. It is a relationship. So God is not just the creator king. He is the relator king. How then do we enter into this relationship? How do we have a relationship with God? Well, we know that it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, but I want to describe that relationship for just a minute. You see, what God has chosen to do, both in the Old Testament and in the New, is for us to have relationships through him with a thing called a covenant or through a thing called a covenant. That there is a covenant relationship that we are supposed to have with God. Um, We don't have uh, a very clear idea anymore of what covenants look like, of what covenants are. But um, what we do have today are things called contracts, right? You've heard of a contract? Um, And contracts in some ways are like covenants in that they're binding, but they are unlike covenants in this way. And it's a very important way. You see, you can have a contract without ever knowing the person you're creating the contract with. Let me give you an example. I, uh, when I bought my first home, I was terrified because of all the money that I was about to spend. And I was terrified because I was entering into an agreement with someone that I didn't know. In fact, even today, I can't tell you that person's name. I have no idea who I bought that house from. 
You see, you can enter into a contract. What holds our relationship together, what allows that thing to process through was not our relationship, was what? The contract. It was a binding agreement that we entered into that day. But you cannot have a covenant without a relationship. Covenants, by their very nature, are relational. The clearest example we have today is marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship given by God. When a person decides to marry someone, they don't just necessarily sign a contract and say, well, I hope this thing works out. The design, the idea is this, that because I know you, because I love you, because I trust you, I want to enter into this life-altering commitment with you. You see, it's based on trust. It's based on relationships so in such a way that when a person stands and is married to another person, what is happening in that moment is they are saying, because of the relationship we have, we want God to hold our relationship together for the rest of our lives. We want God to be the basis and foundation for this commitment that we make today. And this, I think, is a clear example of God's covenants. So, here's the news that I want to hit you with as we prepare to jump in this morning. Did you know today, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in a covenant relationship with God? You are a member of what? The new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper is to remind us that we are a part of a covenant relationship with God. And so in the Old Testament, God was using covenant relationships to reestablish his physical kingdom on the earth. But now today, God is using covenant relationships to continue establishing his spiritual kingdom even now. That is going on today. And so this morning, I want us to see that the foundation of the king's covenant, the king being God, relationship, the foundation of that relationship with Abraham is kind of two things. It's twofold. It is based on grace and is based on faith. Let's look at Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 3 one more time. Word of the Lord says this, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. This is a very significant moment. You see, in this request... Everything hangs in the balance. Everything hangs in the balance when God makes an unthinkable demand of Abraham. He tells him to go and sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. How in the world can God ask that? God knew what Isaac meant to Abraham. God knew that Isaac was a good gift. In fact, God's the one who gave him Isaac. And now he looks at Abraham and he says, the one you love, I demand him back. A little bit later on in this sermon, we'll talk about why. How can God ask that question? We'll work through that in great detail a little bit later. But I want us to notice some things that are really important in verses 1 and 2 as we get started. In verses 1 and 2, there are two phrases that are meant to kind of serve as flashbacks for us. Have you ever watched a movie that has a flashback in it? Do you know what I'm talking about? As you watch the movie, there's you know, kind of the hero or the main character, and it almost feels like perhaps as you start that you're in the middle of the story. 
And then something happens within the story, and it causes the hero to flash back to something in their childhood that suddenly begins to start making a lot more sense about what's going on in the present. And so this is kind of what's happening here. The author of Genesis has written these two verses to serve as flashbacks for us as we look at Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2 specifically. What are those phrases? Well, the first one is God's use of the name Abraham. Just as I had mentioned, God changed Abram's name to Abraham in Genesis 17. That is significant because when God speaks to Abram in several other places throughout the book of Genesis, he doesn't even call his name at all. Once or twice, he actually calls his name, and it's Abram. But then uh, this is one of the first times we see the word Abraham used. God directly addresses him by his covenant name. So we're going to look in Genesis 17 in just a minute, but I want us to go back because this next phrase causes us to go back even further. This next phrase is important, and it is this. In uh, Genesis 22, verse 2, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Here it is. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That phrase is very similar. It's written very similarly to another phrase in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of this covenant relationship that Abraham and God enter into. And God calls Abraham and tells him to go to a land of which I will show you. You see the similarity? And so God is trying to remind Abraham, Abraham, remember, I'm asking something unthinkable. I'm asking something horrible, but remember the big picture. Remember our relationship. Remember our covenant. So we're going to go back for just a moment. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 in Genesis chapter 12. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there with me for just a moment. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I want us to see this promise because it helps make things much clearer for us, I believe. So here we are. This is the beginning of this covenant relationship between Abram and God. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all the fam- excuse me, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is this great promise. In you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is that going to be possible? That is the ultimate promise. That's the huge promise that God gives to Abram. And this is a promise of grace. And so when we read that phrase, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, there are two big words that should just shoot into our minds immediately. Number one is faith, and number two is grace. This promise is a promise of incredible grace. Abram hasn't earned anything from God. Why would Abram choose God or why would God choose Abram to be the one that he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through? Grace. There is no other answer. Abram couldn't earn it. Abram wasn't going to be good enough. It was by the grace of God that he received that promise. But not only that, that same grace that was available to Abraham, guess what? He was going to bless all the nations of the earth through that same grace. And so this grace is given 
to Abram. But how then does Abram access that grace? How does he get this grace? He responds in incredible faith. He responds in faith. The Lord told him, go to a land that I will what? Show you. Did Abraham know where he was going? No, he had no idea. He, in faith, stepped out and began to follow God to a foreign land, and that is huge. Don't let that be lost on you. Unlike today, leaving your family in ancient times was serious business. You see, you and I can move away, uh, and it's not that big of a deal anymore. In fact, in some ways, it's expected that we would move away out of the house of our parents, that we would move away and be separated. But here's the thing. You see, in ancient times... To leave your family was to leave your really only sense of security. To leave your family was to leave the one little set of relationships that was supposed to be guaranteed and promised to you throughout your lifetime. And so it was to leave all safety. It was to leave all sense of security. It was to leave, in some ways, your sense of heritage and significance. And so Abraham, as he steps out in faith to follow God, what the culture is saying to him is, don't do that. You're going to be cut off if you do that. If you follow God to that place, you're a fool. But Abraham chooses to follow God in faith to a land that he would show him. Not only that, as I mentioned, yes, Abraham did respond in faith, but this is important. Did Abraham respond in perfect faith? No. If you read Genesis 12, through 22, what you find in in those 10 chapters leading up to 22 is Abraham's faith was far from perfect, that he failed time and time and time again. And so this covenant relationship, one of the foundations of it is faith, but the other foundation of that relationship is grace because Abraham couldn't deserve it. Abraham couldn't earn it. Abraham couldn't keep the covenant he made with God. I want us to just remember for just a minute some of the mistakes that Abraham made in Genesis 12. So right after the promise we just read. In Genesis 12, he gets this great promise. And then he begins to follow God. And he follows God all the way to the land of Egypt. As he gets to Egypt, he does something. He offers his wife Sarah to Pharaoh to sleep with. Why? Because Abraham's afraid. The Egyptians are strong and powerful, and Sarah is beautiful, and they may kill him to take his wife from him. And so he says, tell them you're my sister, and go and give yourself to another man. He is filled with fear. He doesn't live in faith, even though God has told him he would bless him. In chapter 15, God kind of formalizes this covenant promise, and he walks through a tradition where uh, some animals are cut in two, and God walks through the middle of those uh, bloody animals, and the significance is saying this, if, if I don't fulfill this covenant, then let me be like those animals that are dead on the ground. Let me be like cut to pieces like these animals if I don't fulfill what I say. It's interesting, God knocks Abraham out. He doesn't let Abraham walk through. He tells Abraham, you sit on the side, I'm going to walk through these animals because you can't keep this covenant. You need my grace. I'm going to be the one who will fulfill it. And so not only that, in that same segment, God promises Abram a child. He promises him a child, and it's fascinating. Abram and Sarah hear this, and they're rejoicing, and they're excited, but then they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we're old. How in the world are we going to have children? How in the world is God going to fulfill his promise to us? Maybe we need to help God out. And so, Sarah comes with a plan to offer her maidservant, Hagar, to Abram to sleep with, to help God provide a child. 
And that's exactly what happens. Abram sleeps with her, and a son is born. His name is Ishmael. But God looks at Ishmael, and he rejects him. Why? Because God is saying, I don't need your help. I will provide what I have promised. Sarah will have a child. And so we see God continuing to press that God is faithful even as Abraham is not. In Genesis 20, this is the last one we'll look at. It's, it's just interesting to me. As he is preparing to offer his son Isaac, Isaac is about to be born at this time. In Genesis 20, he's been wandering through the promised land for quite some time, and Abraham should know better, but he has to relearn one of the same lessons from earlier. You see, Abraham offered his wife Sarah to Pharaoh in Egypt, and now another king, King Abimelech, comes. And guess what Abram does? He offers his wife Sarah to King Abimelech. He fails in his faith again. So you would think, Abram, haven't you learned this lesson by now? Haven't you already walked through this before? Shouldn't you know better? But God wants us to see it is by his grace that this covenant relationship will be kept. It is not because of Abraham's perfect faith, which brings us to the next flashback I want to go to very quickly. We're going to flip just a few chapters over to Genesis 17. I want us to just see this for just a moment. Genesis chapter 17. So we looked at that first flashback, go to a mountain I will show you. Go to the mountain of which I will tell you to sacrifice your son on, which is parallel to go to the land of which I will show you. Now we're going to see where God changes Abraham's name in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 only. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into, the, into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so one of the things that is happening is, again, remember, we're talking about God is working at the same time in one man's life on a micro level to prove his faith, but he's also working on a macro level behind the scenes to reorient history to implement his kingdom, to bring about his design and his plan. Did you see what God promised? Did you see what God promised there? This is a series called what? The King and the Kingdom. Look at verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That could be making too much of of a small detail, but if you look at verses 15 and 16, we're not going to read those. When he's talking about Sarah, he says the exact same thing. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from her. Guess what God is doing on a macro level? Guess what he's revealing to Abraham through this promise? There's a kingdom coming. My plan is for you, Abraham. I'm for you. I love you. I will give you this child. But my plan is bigger than you. There is a kingdom coming. And you and I know what kingdom that is. That kingdom is the kingdom of Israel that would come from Father Abraham. But the story wouldn't stop there. 
God would fulfill that promise, and kings that would sit on physical thrones would come from him, but then the king, the king of kings, would come from the kingdom of Israel. Jesus himself would come in the flesh to set his people free from the power of sin and death. God would establish a spiritual kingdom that those of us that know him are a part of even now to this day. You see, God is working to establish his kingdom. The irony of this promise is is just all over the place. Abram, his name means high father, high father. But God changes his name in chapter 17 to Abraham, father of nations. His son hasn't been born yet. How can he be the father of nations? It's only by the grace and power of God. So God is working to establish his covenant relationship in spite of Abraham's lack of faith. One of the things then that we need to understand we're going to zoom back now to chapter 22. We're going to zoom back to chapter 22. You see, God is working through these covenant relationships to reestablish his kingdom on the basis of grace and faith. But now I want us to see how God works in Abram's life to prove his faith. God is working in Abram's life to prove his faith. The relator king proves Abraham's faith in the midst of immense difficulty, in the midst of bitterness. Let's read verses 4 through uh, 14 in Genesis chapter 22. We're not going to read the entirety. I'll stop us. Starting in verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. This is incredibly significant, some of the things that are happening in those verses. God is about to prove Abraham's faith in one of the darkest moments of Abraham's life. How many days did it take for Abraham to reach Mount Moriah? Did you read it? Three. You want to talk about sleepless nights? Those are sleepless nights, knowing I'm about to kill my son. For Abraham, who's now an old man, remember, Isaac was promised when he was 99. Isaac was everything. As a man who left his homeland, Isaac was not just a legacy. He was the promise of God walking around in the flesh. Isaac was living proof that Abraham wasn't a fool to leave his family. He was living proof that the promises were possible, that a king really could come, that nations really could be formed, that Abraham wasn't losing it when he left. And so now, I think we can clearly see this moment is the pinnacle. This moment, everything that has been happening in Abraham's life has been leading him to here and now. How will he respond at the dark mountain of Moriah? The promises the nation, the kingdom, his own son whom he loves all hang in the balance. God is telling Abraham in this moment, give me everything, all that you are. Give it to me. 
Have you ever noticed everyone wants to be a hero? Have you ever noticed that everyone wants to be a hero, but few of us want to pay the price to be the hero? All of us want to have great faith, but do I want to walk to a place that would lead me to walk up Mount Moriah? Do I want to walk to a place that God would allow me to prove my great faith in the midst of great difficulty, in the midst of great bitterness? This is where he is called. Moriah is an ancient Hebrew word. It's an interesting word. Uh, In fact, no one really knows exactly what it means, but scholars suggest that it has something to do, it means something along the lines of bitterness, pain, sorrow. So what is happening here, I think, is a lesson for us. God uses our bitterness. God uses the moments that scar us most to conform us into the image of his Son, God is helping Abraham see that he must prove his faith. Here's what I mean by that word prove. Uh, I am a little ashamed to admit this, but I have spent a good amount of time watching a television show with my wife. The name of that television show is called The Great British Baking Show, okay? And um, that show is an interesting show to me. Uh, But there's contestants, and they're competing against one another to bake the best goodies. Sometimes those things look delicious. Sometimes they look disgusting. But uh, as they're baking, they're they're judged on what they bake, and they only have a certain amount of time to uh, get this dish ready. And there um, is this word that the English people use, the British people use, uh, that's different than ours. You know, it's a different uh, language, and so they're speaking, and it's neat to listen to the accents. But then there's a word that I love. Um, we call it letting the dough rise, right? You put the yeast in and then you allow it to do its thing and the dough begins to rise. They call it to prove. They say you need to prove the dough. And what they mean by that is you need to allow the dough to show itself for what is really inside of it. You need it to allow it to work itself out. Let the chemical reaction that needs to take place be proven. Prove the dough. Friends, I think in many ways God proves our faith. He allows us to go through a process, an excruciating three days for Abraham to prove, to allow what's already inside to come out. And so God uses these difficult circumstances in our lives. You see, to truly live by faith, to truly prove our faith, we must follow Abraham's example. You and I must be children of Abraham is what uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4. We must be like Abraham. How can we do that? I think we need to ask this question. How did Abraham obey? How did Abraham obey in the face of this horrible request? How did he obey in the face of bitterness? I think the question that often um, comes to mind is this. Um, what made it possible that Abraham could do this? What made it possible for him to obey in the midst of this bitterness? Let's look at verses 5 and verses 8. Verses 5 and verses 8, there are two clues that help us immensely. Verse 5 says this, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And then verse 8, Abraham said to his son Isaac when he asked, What about the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. You know what? I believe Abraham had learned as he sojourned through the land of Canaan. 
You know what I believe? In all of his wonderings, he had finally gotten it. The light bulb had finally come on for him. God is able to provide in the midst of my bitterness. I may have to walk through a season. I may wish that God would remove me from the bitterness. I wish, may wish that God would shorten the bitterness. But that's not my role. My role is to obey in the midst of the bitterness and trust that God will provide. And so he had learned through decades of wondering, through decades of isolation, through decades of childlessness, God will provide in my bitterness. This is where you and I must come. This is where you and I must learn to live by faith. Are we willing to walk through the bitterness with God and trust that he will provide? But before we go any further, I want to discuss one more deep question that I think can derail us if we're not careful. And the question is this. It is the question I think we often ask when we walk through bitterness. It's one word. Do you know it? Why? Why? Why, God? Why do I have to walk through this time of difficulty? For Abraham, why, God, would you ask me to sacrifice my son? You see, you and I know what Abraham knew, that child sacrifice is gross. Child sacrifice, in fact, in Deuteronomy, I believe it's um, chapter 12, it's called an abomination to the Lord. Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? The answer is complex, and it requires, I think, some humility on our part because the honest truth is this, friends. We won't totally know in this lifetime. That's part of what faith is, to look at and hope in what we don't completely understand, what we can't completely see. But I want to give us three helpful parts to this answer this morning. Why? was Abraham asked to sacrifice his son. Three, I believe, helpful parts. First, this, that such a request causes us to question God's goodness, and I believe that's part of the point. You see, to live by faith, by its very nature, means we must be willing to walk through things we can't totally see and can't totally understand. To live by faith is most difficult for us when we question the character of God. When we question his character, again, go back to this idea of the king and the kingdom. When is it easiest to rebel against your king? When you're starting to question if he's good. When you're starting to question if he really knows what he's talking about. When you're starting to question if he can come through. And so I can rebel against my king. I'm most tempted to do that when I question his character. The ultimate test of faith is to walk through God's plan and obey in the midst of bitterness when we don't understand completely. The question is this, will I choose to trust the relator king even when I can't understand it all, even when it doesn't make sense to me, even when it hurts? Secondly, I want us to see this. I believe God is asking Abraham to be the ultimate example of human faith for the rest of history. God is asking Abraham to be the ultimate example of human faith for the rest of history, for the nation of Israel, and even for us today. James chapter 2, verse 20 and following. James says this famous statement. I'm sure you've heard it before. Faith without works is dead. Guess who he uses as the example in the following verses? Abraham. 
Guess which part of Abraham's life he uses? This moment. Listen. He says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. You see, Abraham's faith was exposed for what it really is for him personally, but also for the rest of eternity, for our families, for you, for me, for the nation of Israel to know what it looks like to walk by faith. God was using him and calling him to be the example of ultimate faith. Lastly, and most importantly, why did God ask this painful question? Because God is asking Abraham to be a living picture of the gospel for the rest of salvation history. That is huge. God is asking Abraham to be a living picture of what the gospel looks like for the rest of the world to see. Here's what I mean. Abraham is going to be the physical father of Israel. Isaac is the child of the promise. God himself is the spiritual father of Israel. And Jesus Christ is the child of the promise. God is asking Abraham to live out a very small portion in Genesis 22 through this painful, ugly request. He's asking him to live out a very small glimpse of the pain that he would go through to send his son to save us. You see, in Genesis 22, what is happening is this. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him because of this. Someday, Abraham, I will send my son, my only son, whom I love to save you and to save every other person after you from their sin. So, Abraham, you take your son and you carry him up in bitterness because it will cost me my son. You see, God, when he sent Jesus Christ to rescue us, when he sent Jesus Christ to set us free from the power of sin and death, he wasn't just sending an angel. God wasn't just sending some servant. God was sending his son, whom he loved, to be murdered and killed for you and for me. Thank God for that sacrifice. Thank God for his gift to us. One of the beautiful things that comes from this is this. God never asks anything from us that he himself is not willing to do. God is not going to ask you to walk through anything that he himself is not willing to do. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and God would gladly sacrifice his son to set us free from the power of sin and death. There is a lesson here that we must learn. The lesson is this. I think each of us has an Isaac in our lives. Each and every one of us has that one thing or that one person that if the Lord were to take them from us, it might cause us to question the character and goodness of God. And we must be willing to lay it down. I love Corey Ten Boom's quote. Listen to this. It says, You must learn to hold everything loosely, like this. Everything. Even your dear family. Why? Because the Father, God may wish to take one of them back to himself. And when he does, it will hurt you if he has to pry your fingers loose. He is the king. We are not. And friends, I'm afraid that too often our fingers have to be pried loose from a good God. Why? Why does he do that? Because he understands what's best. 
He knows, I will not share the throne of Abraham's heart with his son Isaac. As good as Isaac is, as wonderful as a gift as he will be, he is the fulfillment of the promises. He will fulfill the promises that I have given to Abraham, but I will not share his heart with myself. The same is true for us, friends. God will not share your heart with anyone or anything. He is right to do so. He alone can sit on the throne of your heart. Why? Because he is king. That's why. We must remember that you and I are possessors of nothing, but we are heirs of everything. You see, there's nothing in this life that we can take. There's nothing in this life that we can hold on to But by the power of God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, by the faith that he gives us in his son, we can inherit everything. We can know and be restored to peace and perfect relationship and rest with God. We can be children of his kingdom. And so today I just want to say to you, enjoy the gifts that God gives you. Enjoy the good things that God has placed in your life. Love them. Cherish them, but never let them sit on the throne of your heart. Allow God alone to sit in that place. Psalm 63, 8 says this, this idea of clinging. My soul clings to you. Your righteous right hand upholds me. We must cling to King Jesus. Friend, I want to ask you this morning, who are you clinging to? Who do you cling to today? Lastly, lastly, the relator king ultimately ble- excuse me, blessed Abraham by relationship with himself. And this is how he blesses all of the nations of the earth today. Verses 15 through 19, I'm going to read quickly and we'll wrap up. It says this, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. One of the amazing things is Abraham walks through this moment. He walks through one of the ultimate trials that any person could ever face. But Abraham doesn't get to see all the promises fulfilled. Abraham was promised much. You'll be the father of nations. Kings will come from you. I didn't have time to cover it today. He also promised land, that there would be a promised land, Canaan, that you and your families will inherit. Did Abraham see any of that? No. Abraham died in faith. He never saw this covenant completely fulfilled in his lifetime. He saw his son, and that was it. But I want to stand before you today. You see, from our little earthly, finite perspective, a person might look at Abraham's life and said, you wasted it. You didn't even get to see it. You didn't even get to know any of it. You didn't even get to live in the promised land. You lived in a tent. You wasted your life. Here to tell you, friends, God gets the final word on your life. 
It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter what people say about you. What matters is what God says. So now let's look at what God has said about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read these verses, 8 through 13. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he is going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, it's interesting. Abraham didn't have perfect faith. Remember the failures we recounted? Remember the way that he tried to help God out? Abraham didn't have perfect faith, but the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention any of that here. Why? Because I believe on that mountain, in the midst of the bitterness, Abraham proved his faith. He proved that he loved God best. He proved that no one else could sit on the throne of his heart. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look at Abraham. Look at his faith. Be like Abraham. Go and live your lives by faith. Love him first. Abraham's ultimate reward, his ultimate joy, was to know God and for God to be his greatest blessing. Is he your greatest blessing today? Let's pray together.